This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Jonathan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. Glad to be here. So today, the topic is going to be sticky prices, and maybe, Jonathan, for the benefit of the listener, what what do we mean by that? And then we'll get into some of the more substantive issues. But what the heck is a sticky price? Sure. Uh, sticky prices is, is this concept in, in it mainly a Keynesian economic theory, but it shows up in other schools of thought as well, uh, that says that uh, prices are slow to adjust to, to market conditions or to other things that are happening in the economy. And therefore, it uh, causes all sorts of problems. In the Keynesian system, they refer to sticky wages and sticky prices as a, as a source of a disequilibrium, meaning that uh, there's some big change in aggregate demand, a change in how much people want to spend. And then uh, there's so there's a, a reduction in demand for goods, but that doesn't translate into lower prices for the factors of production. And, so, and in the case of labor, what that means is you get uh, unemployment. You get, the, you get uh, uh, too much... Uh, or, or you, you get a disconnect between uh, supply and demand in the market for labor, and so you have this you have this unemployment that results that's that's difficult for the market to resolve on its own for whatever reason. And the reasons that are given for for sticky prices are are all sorts of things like the the length of contracts. People do mention things like government intervention, like a minimum wage legislation that that would uh, do the same thing. But also uh, even psychological factors, like people are just unwilling to accept the fact that uh, that their their wage might be decreasing, and so instead of accepting the lower nominal pay, even if their uh, real wage would stay the same, uh, they decide to up and quit and find a different job, perhaps. And so these are these are all things that that Keynesians use to to uh, argue in favor of government intervention. So we can use uh, the printing press, we can use government spending to pick up the slack in spending to, to, to stimulate the economy since, since prices don't adjust as fast as we want them to, and we can uh, prevent all of those problems from happening. Yeah, and another application of this idea, um, it's not just the Keynesians. It comes from, for example, the market monetarists, people like Scott Sumner. And I remember, so he was saying, oh, it's important for the Fed to keep NGDP, nominal GDP, growing at a certain amount per year, five percent, let's call it, and and why is that? You know, because Norm and, and Scott Sumner is a very uh, glib, well-trained Chicago school economist. You know, so he's it's not that he's a central planner. He understands how markets work in general, and the government officials can't second guess the marketplace and so forth. But what when it comes to well, gee, why do, why does the Fed need to have this certain growth in nominal GDP? He says, well, because certain things are sticky. For example mortgages. He says, so people, if they're buying houses and assuming they've got, you know, 30 years to be able to do such and such and make these fixed payments, and they assumed going into those calculations that their income was going to rise at 5% in nominal terms every year in the aggregate, and then all of a sudden it doesn't, like, it, you know, after the 2008 crisis or whatever, if, if, if nominal wages are not and salaries aren't rising, well, then all of a sudden there might be a squeeze because it's not, if, in other words, like if, if the demand for money goes up and in general prices are, quote, supposed to fall 3% in order to clear the market with the, given the new demand for money and wages don't grow as much or f even fall, 
but your mortgage payment doesn't come down too automatically, well, then that's a problem, right? So there's things like that where you're saying that like long-term contracts, if there's a change in the supplier demand for money from what people projected, that can screw things up because the, the idea being, tell me if you agree with this simplification or this punchline, Jonathan, a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, if all prices instantly adjusted to the new realities of supply and demand, then any shock to the system would quickly you know, be absorbed and there'd be no role for the government or the central bankers to do anything. Everything would just immediately adjust to the new fundamentals. But in practice, there's certain prices that don't instantaneously adjust. And so those markets can be in disequilibrium for a long time. And rather than just letting them sit there and wallow either in a state of glut or surplus, it would be better for the policymakers to come in and do something to get the market out of that rut. Does that sound right to you? Well, yeah, yeah, you've accurately described what what the what they say, and uh, of course their their solution, their prescription in that case is is usually money printing. It's usually to to increase the supply of money uh, in that case, uh, which is it's a very blunt tool. So if their if their argument is that there are certain prices that are sticky, there are certain industries, maybe even certain products that have. Uh, or in the case of labor, a certain factor of production that uh, th- those prices are slow to adjust, and those are the things that are causing problems. And yet, their answer is this very, very blunt tool, which is to just increase the supply of money in general. So it will just give everybody uh, more money, or will inject more money into the system. But when you do that, there's no real way once you once you increase the supply of money to direct it in the exact locations that. That you think well, you can need I, can it I stop to. you, Jonathan? Sure, sure. Before we get into what's the problem with that, let me just give one more example. I want like sure. the, the listeners um, or the viewers for those looking at the YouTube version. Let me just make sure they're they're really getting like who are we arguing with? So we've talked about there's the Keynesians, there's the market monitors, and there's even our good friends, the other Austrians or former Austrians maybe <laughs> who are um, fans of what's so called free banking. And so, in particular, if you say to them. What's you know what's wrong with a hundred percent reserve banking? What's the big deal? You know why, why are you so against it? And one of the things they'll say in terms of no, in practice, why is it that their system of a banking system that you know it, it's based on market principles? There's not a central bank, you know, Selgin and white guys like that. They don't they don't like the Fed either. But they're saying no, even in a pure laissez-faire economy that's great, hitting on all cylinders, the banking system they say it should be flexible in the sense that, hey, if there's for some reason a sudden demand to hold more money, if we rigidly insisted that, let's say it's back, it's, let's say it's gold is the actual money, and, and they're fine with that, and but if all of a sudden the community just wants to add to their cash balances for whatever reason, if you Rothbardian types who insist that the banking system has 100% reserves, what that would mean is all of a sudden prices would be, um, what would it be, too high quoted in, in gold and because everyone would be hoarding the gold, and so prices need to fall, but some prices would be sticky. And so, yes, eventually, over time, the so-called sticky prices would come down. People would go, they would dig up more gold, they would get, you know, they'd stamp more gold coins to help satisfy the increased demand for gold. But the banking system couldn't do anything in that on that front, because all they can do is if you want to issue more notes or more electronic checking deposits of gold ounces on deposit with this bank, you got to go give us more yellow metal and put it in the vault of your hundred. Whereas in their flexible fractional reserve free banking system, if the community wants to hold more gold for some reason, we don't have to go through this laborious process of prices falling or digging up more 
uh, you know, pieces of yellow metal. Instead, the banks can just issue more notes saying the bearer of this note can turn it in and get another ounce of gold, even though the amount of gold coins in the vaults hasn't gone up. Because if, by assumption, the scenario, the community wants to hold more money, well, then it's profitable, blah, 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 with the conditions and, and the free banking models that the banks issue more notes or electronic claims, whatever, and then the people just put them in their, their cash balances, and great. So we, we solve the problem. We satisfy the, the community's desire to hold more money, even though we didn't go dig up more gold, and we don't have to go through this, this lengthy process where prices, in a sense, are too high because the way we satisfy the demand for more money is just to give them more money rather than having prices come down. Do you, are you so? Are you okay with my summary of what their view is and why they think, in practice, insisting on one hundred percent reserve banking could lead to problems? Yes, and, and uh, if if I could mention, like the reason why we we are discussing this now is there was just this recent uh, flare up in which I, I just made the the offhand uh, comment that if you hold to this uh, this sticky prices idea, that markets will uh, will will come up and persist in having disequilibrium uh, prices where markets aren't clearing. Uh, but if you if you hold to that idea, but you also claim to hold to Hayek's idea about uh, the market system making efficient use of decentralized knowledge, then it seems like there's there's this disconnect. And so that so when I when I made that uh, that uh, comment, then the, the the people that that you just mentioned, uh, they they definitely they didn't like that. They didn't like being accused of of, of rejecting Hayek's idea uh, by being in favor of the whole uh, sticky prices idea. Yeah, so I thought it was a good point. And so that's so now folks were. Switching gears now that we've made sure we've been fair to make sure you understand this is what the perspective is now. Jonathan and I are going to go through some of our concerns with that or some of the weaknesses we see in it. So, yeah, maybe if you could just flesh that out a little bit. And you're right. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. That's the, the news hook. That's why you and I, this is on our minds and why we're picking this topic right now is because you just started a little another mini civil war. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, first of all, what you know, what. Again, everybody in this camp, they, they like Hayek's ideas. And um, the analogy I used was when I was trying to explain where you were coming from, because some people were like, what the heck? I don't even, I can't even understand what this guy Jonathan's even talking about. And so the analogy I used was to say, clearly, anybody who's a fan of Hayek understands that if a socialist or, you know, some kind of far left progressive comes along and says, well, gee, uh, advertising is wasteful. You know, that's just a silly thing. That's just, you know, marketing. There's no reason. That doesn't really help the consumer any. And so the fact that, you know, certain prices are being charged because the, the company has to make back its advertising costs, that's crazy. Just get rid of advertising. Prices should be lower for that reason. And it, it'd like to second guess that real world fact of, well, no knowledge is dispersed and that actually there is a vital role in advertising. Like that's a, a very simple way of you know, a, a standard economist, certainly one coming out of the Hayekian tradition that would explain, no, advertising isn't wasteful. It has a definite social function and market prices need to take that stuff into account. It's not wasteful. And and so to say that prices are higher than they need to be because of silly advertising budgets, you're, you're kind of overlooking something real. And so I was saying, so likewise, that's what Jonathan is saying that to talk about, oh, well, you know, there's these sticky prices and because of that market failure, that's why we need to have the you know the banks to be able to flood the market with new notes or something in the in the event of a, a spike in the demand for money that yeah that there's a sense in which they also are saying these are the wrong market prices they should be lower but oh, they're sticky they can't go down the way they ought to and so we are going to say well what can we do 
to fix this flaw with the market. So it might be helpful here just to, to remind people what Hayek's argument was. So Hayek was making an argument against socialism, and he was saying that a central planning board would not be able to make use of all of the knowledge that is made available to the market system. And the idea is that by market participants interacting with each other in markets, buying and selling things, they're going, they're going to provide things for sale and they're going to demand things on the market based on their own preferences, based on their own uh, know-how in terms of like how to produce things, based on their, their own like individual knowledge and preferences, the, all of the, everything that they know about themselves and the situation that they're in in the spot that they're in when they're when they're making these transactions. And so these these prices that emerge from that sort of system convey to other people in the market the the value or 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 how how dear that that good is or how how dear that uh, resource is. And so if if the the price of iron for example is increasing, that can that conveys to everybody else in the market system that uh, that we need to conserve how how much iron we're using. We need to we need to reserve it for just the most important things. And Hayek's point was that prices prices do that for us in the market system. So prices both contain and convey the necessary information uh, that that people on the spot have, and and the reason I, I emphasize that that on the spot and, and the market participants coming up with those prices is because it, if if you want to claim that a price is sticky, it means that you're making a comparison of what actually occurs on the market based on the interactions of these market participants that have have the decentralized knowledge that Hayek was talking about. So if you want to make the claim that that price is sticky, it means that you're making a, a comparison of that price to some other price that you think is ideal or or is is the one that they would settle on if there were no frictions or in the, in the case of of what, of what one person mentioned, if there was an omniscient auctioneer, the price that would emerge in that sort of case. And so if you're making that sort of comparison, uh, it's a, first of all, it's a good example of the nirvana fallacy. You're, you're making a comparison that doesn't make any sense because you're comparing it to a world that cannot exist, where there, where there is an omniscient uh, auctioneer, uh, which, by the way, is, is something that a, a central planning board would, would claim to be, is, is something along those lines. So I, really, I do think that the argument makes – I mean, it was, it was sort of a flippant, offhand observation that I made, but I do think it makes sense to say that if – if you claim that uh, prices are sticky or even one particular price is sticky, it means that you are saying that you have a better idea of what that price ought to be compared to uh, the market participants that, that are actually – that have the knowledge and are, are coming up with those prices on their own. Yeah, and I, let me just kind of paraphrase what you said there to, to, to make sure people are getting what your, what your point is, is that, yeah, in general, you, me, Joe Salerno, Murray Rothbard – George Selgin, Larry White, we all agree that a lot of times when leftists look at market prices and object to them, it's like, oh, that CEO is making $2 million a year. He's not worth that. What is he goes around and pushes some paper around? That's crazy. Right? That, that That's just reflecting complete ignorance and that, no, you don't understand what it is the market does. Yeah, maybe you don't like the particular value systems involved with the, you know, if you're talking about like a CEO of a tobacco company, maybe you say, yeah, people shouldn't smoke. And so, from that perspective, that CEO shouldn't be making any money at all. But okay, given that's what people's preferences are, you know, it performs a market function, blah, blah, blah. Right. And we're all good on that. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to so called sticky prices, you're right that there is this sense in which we're going to say, oh, when it comes to that 
issue, then yeah, there, there we, we are qualified to say that those market prices, in a sense, are either too high or too low. Typically, they're, they're going to be too high because the claim usually is that once a price gets to a certain plateau, it's hard for it to go down. So yeah, like workers' wages, it's hard for them to go down. It's, if there's an increase in demand for labor, it's fine for nominal wages to go up. They're not sticky downward, but they're, they're rigid that they won't, they, it's hard for them to go down if the new market conditions are such that they're supposed to. Um, so yeah, there's lots of things we could say. So one point I want to make is to go right along with this to show that we're not, um, in my opinion, being unfair or cheeky, but with this perspective is to say, look, it's, it's not that in general, every price can only move 10% per week or something. There's some prices are not sticky at all. Like the price of, you know, uh, iron ore or something, you know, price of commodities generally are extreme, extremely flexible, whereas other prices aren't that, you know, labor prices or the um, rental contracts, you know, mortgages, things like that. And so you see, well, gee, why, why is that? How come some prices seem to be sticky and others don't? And it's because that's the outcome of the market process. Because you could flip it. Can you imagine a world where if the demand for a product went down, all the workers' wages immediately were proportionally adjusted? You could imagine a bunch of interventionists saying, look, at that's market failure right there. How the heck can you be a worker, make long-term plans, you know, move into a neighborhood, buy a house, if you know your employer can just come back to you tomorrow and say, oh, sorry, the demand for our TVs went down 12%. So instead of you making whatever you were before, now you're going to make 12% less this week in your paycheck. That, well, gee, how could you? And so you could imagine if, if wages immediately adjusted to market conditions, that there'd be all kinds of leftists up in arms about this cruel, ridiculous market system. And that's why we need government intervention to ensure that there's some stability in your wage rate. right? Or the same thing with a, a mortgage payment. There, there are types of mortgages that adjust, and that you know was causing people to lose their minds back in two thousand seven. So, um, it's there's a reason certain wages are, or prices are sticky, and some aren't. And it seems kind of arbitrary just to you know to, to to say, oh well, yeah, but in this case, those considerations we're just going to forget about what that is and focus on what we think is the downside of the situation. Yeah, and I think uh, I think Selgin uh, would say that he, he would agree with the idea that there is. Like there is a certain amount of stickiness that is desirable in the market. The difference is is uh, in my my position, and I think others others uh, would say that that's that stickiness, uh, which may be optimal because people don't want their wages to be updated every single time they walk into their into the factory. They don't want their wages to go up and down with uh, with all other prices in the economy. They want they want some stability. So they would agree that that there is that there is like an optimal level of stickiness. Uh, but but the stretch that I think is made is is when you say, uh, okay, so those prices don't change as fast as other prices, therefore markets don't clear at those prices. So the fact that the the, the price isn't changing compared to other prices means that there's means that uh, we get idle resources that we get we get uh, the disconnect between supply and demand that I that I mentioned before. So in in my own view. Uh, so, and after you know reading uh, stuff from uh, Joseph Salerno, I, I think the the main issue here is the different conceptions of equilibrium. What what actually is market equilibrium? And and there's a great uh, Salerno piece uh, called uh, Mises's Monetary Theory. Uh, let's see, I have the the full title here. In, in light of uh, modern monetary thought, and he, he makes the 
he makes the claim here that there are multiple types of equilibrium that we could think of or states of rest in the market. So the, the he talks about how markets uh, start achieving what's called plain states of rest. And he, he's using Mazesian terminology there. And he's talking about how people use the knowledge that they have, the expectations that they have, with the preference that they have, preferences that they have, and they're, they're speculating about what prices might be in the future. Nevertheless, they come up they come up with mutually beneficial exchanges and, and the prices that emerge from these, these sort of first transactions that happen in the so-called market day, it, it might be based on in, uh, incomplete information compared to what they will have later on. But the point is that they, the mar- market's clear based on the demands that exist in the moment. And so Salerno talks about the step-by-step process by which uh, prices emerge in markets based on mutually beneficial market clearing uh, um, market clearing outcomes, give, given the knowledge and information that the the suppliers and, and the demanders have, moment by moment, the fact that we can we can talk about what prices might be later on when they have more complete information, uh, well, we can talk about that, and that's beneficial to talk about how markets progress and and how the market process works. Uh, but to but to compare that future price that that would happen once people have more information to the current market prices and say since the current market price isn't the same as the one that will happen at the end of the market day when people have more information that this this the price that happens in the moment by moment case is suboptimal or or less uh, it's less beneficial or or re- represents a, a sort of situation where people aren't as well off as as in the later case. It, it's sort of ignoring the fact that, well, that the later price that emerges, it can only emerge through the market process that happens earlier. So it's, it's really an inappropriate comparison. One, one is necessary for the other. And the fact that one happens later doesn't mean that it's a, it's a, a, it's a standard. It's something that we can compare current market prices and say, this one obviously isn't a market clearing price because later on in the day, we know that the market participants are going to settle on a price that's based on more full information. Yeah. Um, and just to give people you know, some sort of humdrum examples of this kind of thing, I mean, uh, when, people, when you go to sell your house – it's often, quote, on the market for months, right? And so you could argue, oh, the price is too high, you know, because, yeah, probably, you know, if someone has their house and it's been on the market for a few weeks and it's got some people looking at it, probably it's true if you lowered your asking price by 15%, you might get more interest in it and, and so on, you know what I mean? But so that that's, you know, that's not that, oh, the house, is, your price is too sticky. It's like, no, there's clearly part of what you're doing there is you're trying to find the right buyer or, if you know people get laid off and they're looking for a new job, there's a sense in which you could probably get hired tomorrow if you went down to Arby's or something. But if you were, you know, used to be a software engineer, maybe you're holding out looking for another firm. So there's a sense in which, hey, your your reservation wage is too high. It's sticky. You need to have your wage drop in order for you to get hired tomorrow. And if if you don't. Then you're part of the unemployment pool, and up oh, markets aren't clearing unemployment. You know, and but yet there, and there's also like this thing called the natural rate of unemployment. That at any given time, it's actually healthy in a market economy for a certain group of workers to be looking for work, because if they weren't, that probably means that once you get laid off or leave your job, that you're you know not spending enough time searching for where should I fit into the con- so with all these things. Or every time you fly, if there's a seat next to you that's open. There's a sense in which, oh, the airfare was too high. 
because they, you know, there's disequilibrium that, uh, you know, the quantity supplied of airline seats is higher than the quantity demanded on that day and that flight. And so there's a sense in which maybe the price was too high. So you can see with all these things that, well, no, once you get more realistic and think about the situation, the fact that the quantity supplied and quantity demanded is not always identical every second of every day doesn't mean that this is you know some some diagnosis of market failure. Given all the reality of the situation, that's the best possible outcome there could be. And like you say, part of it is people aren't omniscient. And so this is like a very Hayekian point that – yeah, if if everybody had perfect knowledge and could find each other, then houses would sell within 48 hours all the time. And workers, once they got laid off, would immediately know what their next best alternative would be and would go to work, you know, two days later. But that's not what happens. There's they're searching. Mm-hmm. So I, I had this great quote from uh, from the Salerno paper that I mentioned, uh, and the quote is is from Arthur Marget, who uh, is sort of an underappreciated. Uh, um, theorists that I think uh, Austrians uh, should should take a look at and he's talking about how how the prices that that really matter are the ones that are actually realized the ones that actually appear on the market that those are the prices that that uh, need to be explained and that if the if the economist is is thinking about some sort of hypothetical market where uh, people have uh, full information, perfect information, and all that sort of stuff, then this sort of price would emerge. I mean, that, that, that's fine to think about, but it, at the end of the day, what economists need to be explaining is what actually happens on the market. So, so here's the quote. Uh, the prices which we must ultimately explain are the prices realized at specific moments in clock time, and the only demand and supply schedules which are directly relevant to the determination of these realized prices are market demand and supply schedules prevailing at the moment the prices are realized. So if you if you have this idea that a price is wrong, it means that you're you're thinking that uh, there's some sort of real quote unquote real supply and demand schedule that for some reason isn't in effect, or market participants aren't even going along with their own uh, real preferences, and that what they're doing is is uh, suboptimal. And the reason why is because you you think that it ought to be going a different a different way, and so that that just it, just to circle back to the the original claim that I was making, it means it means that you're saying that you you have a better idea of what market participants should be doing than than what the market participants actually are doing. Do you want to take a moment to address? Um, so Selgin came back with a, you know a plausible objection to what you're saying, and he, and he said, you know, Jonathan, give give me a break. I'm putting words in his mouth, obviously, but this is the spirit of it. Give no, me that's a break. close to it. Sure, yeah, <laughs> surely we as economists can say. Oh, if there's, um, you know, rent control or something, or no, or should I do it? No, minimum. Let's say minimum wage legislation that, um, oh, it's holding, you know, wages artificially high, and that doesn't, you know, I'm not violating the spirit of Hayek for me as an economist to be saying, yeah, right now the market wage rate is too high, and that's why there's unemployment in that sector. And so if you're, if I'm allowed to talk like that, and I'm not being a bad Hayekian in that context. How come I can't say, oh, there's sticky – if what's holding the wages up isn't literal legislation but just you know, these various things we've talked about um, and that's why the prices are momentarily above market clearing levels and so there's unemployment in the labor market. Why can't I talk like that? I'm not being – maybe I don't know exactly – oh, instead of the wage rate being $15 an hour, it should be $13.68. I don't know that but I can see there's unemployment. And I can see that there's sticky wages, and I know, I know from my assessment of the market that the demand for money has gone up because we're in a panic or something. 
So, you know, I'm just saying the market price is too high. I don't know exactly what it should be, but I can tell you it's too high. And if I if you're going to say that when there's minimum wage laws and teenagers have 20 percent unemployment, how come I can't say that in this situation? Yeah, so I'll, I'll address the first part of what you said with, uh, in reference to the minimum wage. Uh, unfortunately, in my original uh, post, I, I didn't make this clarification that what I'm really what I'm really trying to get at is. Uh, the idea that there could be sticky wages that cause causes markets not to clear uh, on an unhampered market, so that there's no there's no sort of government intervention that's preventing markets from clearing. I, I think I think everybody except well I don't know maybe I should be careful saying that Mo- most people would say well yeah obviously you can have disequilibrium sticky wages as a result of the government imposing saying the price has to be such and such or the wage has to be such and such. Uh, but that's not really what I was getting at. What I was getting at is, is the claims that uh, people make about how markets themselves, unhampered markets, without any sort of government intervention, would would settle on a a and persistently hold to a disequilibrium price. Um, so, so that's the sort of thing that I was addressing. Uh, but the the second part that you, that you were talking about um, this. It was actually uh, completely coincidental. I was uh, I was looking for a totally different paper uh, through my files, and I I just sort of stumbled across the the title of a paper that mentioned price stickiness, and it uh, it made me pause because I just I just had this uh, discussion uh, about it, and it was a, a, a Philip Vegas and David Howden paper in the. Uh, review of Austrian economics. Let me uh, make sure that I get the title right. Monetary equilibrium and price stickiness: causes, consequences, and remedies. And they're they're addressing the cl- the claims of of Selgin and White and others, and really all monetary disequilibrium uh, people who argue in favor of fractional reserves as a uh, or the issue of fiduciary media as a way to fix the problem. And and what Vegas and Houghton uh, they they talk about is that it's. Um, it's not as big of a problem as, as you might think. So, so, so suppose prices are slow to adjust. Uh, there are so many other ways for markets to, to actually uh, to, to convey the information that they need to eat. And they reference a Holzman paper that talks about how they could use quantity. So they could change quantity supplied and quantity demanded. As a po- if prices are slower to adjust, then entrepreneurs are free to use uh, quantity changes to 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 get markets to clear and and to get their ends attained, so so they talk through all of these all of these sorts of uh, ways that we don't we don't need to use uh, fiduciary issue we don't we don't need to use fractional reserve banking to fix the problem and in fact they show that that those sorts of things actually create more problems um, in in their attempt to to solve it. Um, I'm not sure if that addressed uh, what you what you were getting at there, but that that was the direction that the discussion went. Well, yeah, and it tied into. You know, I think what should be this the last major, major thing we'll hit here the time we have left. The, yeah, the um, so maybe one way of putting it is let's concede everything that they're saying, even on their own terms. Um, I I think there's sort of like a feedback loop where because we have these mechanisms in place where if there's a demand for more money, more money gets showered upon the market, that that in a sense, causes the so-called price stickiness or wage stickiness. And so, for example, that, you know, one of the standard arguments about why the 1930s were so bad and, oh, and whether, you know, talking about Paul Krugman all the way down to Milton Friedman to, I think, even Selgin and White are going to say, oh, yeah, the Fed fell asleep at the wheel and certainly Scott Sumner. I don't know. I don't want to say about Selgin and White. I'm not sure. But for sure, Scott Sumner would say, oh, yeah, the Fed committed a huge blunder in the early 30s 
by sitting back while the money stock collapsed as everybody was pulling their money out of the banks. And um, and so, yeah, since the money stock collapsed, prices had to fall. But, oh, shoot, wages are sticky, so that couldn't happen. So that's why you had 25% unemployment. And what do you think is going to happen? Duh, the Fed needed to pump in more money. But what's interesting is if you look at the so-called wage stickiness of the early 30s and you compare it to the uh, 1920-21 depression, nominal wages fell a lot faster in 1920 and 21 than they did in the early 30s. And so, um, you know, and there's different reasons for why that is, like, you know, unions and the, the federal government with the Hoover administration, they were doing stuff. But for whatever reason, you know, labor realized, oh, we can we can uh, hold out and not have our wages get cut. Among other things, Herbert Hoover was explicitly telling big business, don't cut wage rates because he had this theory that that's what causes a downward spiral. Oh, you cut the workers' wages. Well, how are they supposed to buy the product? And that just blah, 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 blah. And so he insisted to the you know big uh, business leaders when he called them in right after the stock market crash in 29, Herbert Hoover explicitly told them, don't cut your wage rates. Let's not do the same pattern. And so anyway, for various reasons, that didn't happen. But the so-called you know wage stickiness that was allegedly the reason that the Fed needed to pump the, that was that didn't happen in the early twenties, right? So wages, for some reason, magically got stickier in the ten-year period. And I think it's the same kind of thing here, where if workers know that they're in a system where the banking system is real flexible and could just pump in, I think workers are going to hold out for higher wages, thinking, well, that's that's what the mechanism. Whereas if they know, no, just the way our our economy works, there's not new money coming in. Well, then you can take a pay cut. And also just growing up in that world, you would know, oh, yeah, when there's a financial panic, prices in general come down 20%. And so, you know, it's okay if my boss wants to cut my wage 10% because I know prices, whereas people growing up now in our world are going to realize that, no, that that typically doesn't happen. Even when the economy's bad, stuff keeps getting more expensive all the time. So there's no way I want to take a new job at a huge pay cut. Yeah, and to uh, to get back to, I sort of jumped the gun earlier when I started talking about how the uh, increasing the money supply or increasing the supply of credit is a really it's a really blunt uh, force tool that's used to try to address this problem. So the, the idea is that if there are if there are uh, wages that are sticky or certain prices that are sticky, and the policy prescription is to increase the supply of credit, it's, 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 they're totally detached from one another. So, so like you have a, the supply of credit over here that's in, that's in one market, but then you have these specific individual prices that are that people conceive to be uh, too sticky, and and those things need to change, or we need to we need to we need the the increase in demand to happen in those specific markets since prices uh, won't change, and and of course as, as we know. Uh, Increasing the supply of money, it comes into the market at a particular point. But one, I mean, once it comes into the market at a particular point, usually uh, through credit markets and in, in our modern institutional framework, uh, there, there's no telling what direction it will go. There's no there's no telling how the money will be spent. Uh, it, it's it all, it's all dependent on the preferences of the people who are receiving those incomes and what they want to purchase. Uh, there, basically, what I'm saying, and this is the claim that uh, Vegas and Howden make in their paper, there's there's no way to to guarantee that. The increase in the supply of credit that that comes in in through fractional reserve banking or a central bank doing it, there's no way to guarantee that it's going to go in the exact right spot that it needs to uh, in order to resolve the the, the so-called problems with with price stickiness. And and of course, they also talk about all of the other issues that are that are caused. So if if you hold to Austrian business cycle theory, then you have to reconcile that as well. So yeah. 
even if there is a price stickiness problem and an increase in the money supply would help it out, well, then you also have to deal with the fact, well, what if you, what, what, what if you start a, a new business cycle? What if you create, the, create more problems down the road? What if you create the, the boom and then the bust? Um, they also talk about how if you have a central authority that's in charge of, of making the new, the new money, or even if it's through the banking system, then that's, a, that's an extra layer of uncertainty. That's an extra layer of guesswork that entrepreneurs have to, have to, to wrestle with when they're trying to make their, uh, their exchanges on the market and purchase factors of production. It, it doesn't necessarily make everything easier for everybody because you're trying to stabilize prices. It adds, a, it adds an un, another element of you have to guess what the monetary authority is going to do. You have to guess you have to guess what the new supply of credit is going to be on top of what are going to be the changes in the relative prices on top of, well, this price is going to change here, but this price is going to adjust a little bit slower than other prices. So it, it adds an extra layer of complication as opposed to making things easier for, for entrepreneurs. Yeah, and let me just underscore, because this was something that I didn't quite grasp for a long time. So when I was a young Austrian and I delved into the fractional reserve banking debate, uh, it looked like both sides had quotes from Mises showing, oh, Mises agrees with us. You know, there are clearly quotes that where it seemed like he said that fractional reserve banking, or he'd call it the issuance of fiduciary media, was a problem and would cause the boom-bust cycle. But then there were other quotes where it sounded like he was totally on board with it. And the res- and I read, I think it was a Joe Salerno paper, not the one you cited, but a different one where, where I really saw it spelled out. And then also, folks, I will link um, to my recent paper on this this controversy. Um, and I think in, in, re- and, and so I had thought at the time that, Oh, maybe his Mises matured, his view changed and that's, but no, actually he's, he was consistent throughout. He crystal clear says the issuance of fiduciary media or you know, engaging in fraction reserve banking causes the boom bust cycle period. And he says, now if the banks don't do too much of it, it's not going to be a big boom bust cycle, but there, there, he says there's no amount of normal credit expansion. That you know, there's oh yeah, the needs of business or whatever the banks can issue some unbacked. Cre-. He said no, that always causes the boom bust cycle. Um, and then you you can read that that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that could possibly be beneficial from it. But you know, he was pretty crystal clear on that. And so that's I think what you're saying, Bagus and Howden, we're getting at is that it, whether you think it's a good idea or not, or or you think it's a legitimate justification to say oh, there's this problem in the labor market because wages are sticky and. Uh-oh, if there's an de- increased demand to hold money, we have disequilibrium, and that's why the banks should do – okay, but if you believe in Mises' theory of the business cycle, by the banks doing that, they're setting us up for a boom-bust cycle, so you're going to have this same problem again in a few years when the bust happens again from this new one where all of a sudden the demand for workers is going to drop and people are going to panic and want to hold more money, and we're going to have unemployment spike, and at that point again, we're going to say, oh, man – too bad wages are sticky. We have high unemployment. Let's have the banking system flood the economy with more money, and you're just going to keep getting that same pattern over and over again. Yeah, that's right. So I, I, it's a great lesson in uh, in how to think like an economist. I think because uh, you have to you have to take market participants for uh, who they are and, and what preferences that they have, and take markets for what they are, and and see the prices that emerge on those markets and use that as a, something to explain or as, or something to, to analyze and not try to come not try to come at the the whole uh, picture with a preconceived notion about what mark what markets ought to look like and and then if there's a difference then then 
you you shouldn't point your finger at the market. Maybe you should take another look at your theory. And another way that it's a good lesson in thinking like an economist, since we've talked about this, the sorts of policy prescriptions that emerge from this sort of thinking is you have to you have to think about the unintended consequences. You have to think about the the other sorts of uh, things that would be that would happen as a result of you saying, well, if if sticky prices are a problem, then maybe we should do X. Well, you have you have to do due diligence. You have to think through well what what are the consequences of X? How will market participants respond to that policy, and so on and so forth? So overall, I would say that this this whole thing it's been a fascinating discussion online, and and uh, I, I think it's a good lesson in how to think like an economist. <laughs> For a second there, John, I thought you were going to say maybe you should look at your own theories. Maybe you're the one who's too sticky. All yeah. right, with that, uh, <laughs> we've got a hard stop here on the clock here, so we got to wrap it up. So thank you again, Jonathan, for your time. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to yet another episode, and we will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.